Loading. Artist. Audio. Insight. Otcast. Verb. Interview with artists working today. Otcast. Noun. Insights into the work and process. Hello, and welcome to Otcast. I'm your host, Philip J. Mellon. Loading. Artist. Audio. Insight. Hi, Mitchell. Yeah. Hi, this is Philip Mellon from Oddcast. Hi, Philip. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. Good, good. I uh, just want to thank you for uh, for uh, connecting with me and uh, agreeing to do this. I guess if you're ready, we can start with the questions. Yeah, sure. I actually looked at your questions just uh, in the last hour or so and jotted down some ideas. So, uh, oh, okay. I think I think they were good. I like the structure of having everybody talk about a series of questions to get started. So. Right, right, yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I guess uh, a good a good way to start is just asking you when when you start uh, your paintings. Do you have a uh, any sketches or preliminary works that that are involved in the process? Well, they you know every painting really is pretty much a product of all the other ones that came before it. Right. Um, so, I, like, sometimes people ask, you know, how long do they take to make, or how do you get them started, and they all just feel like they're kind of cycling along, following each other to some extent, and um, that said, some of them are made on white canvases, brand new canvases, and I do sometimes draw right on the canvas, uh, making a series of shapes, uh, or, some, or actually drawing, you know, something like a house, something specific. And that might come, the drawing might come from another painting, or it might come from a photo. Okay. Uh, occasionally it might even come from memory. But I also work on paintings that, that, didn't, that didn't succeed, you know, so I paint on top of other things. And at that point, if you make a drawing on top of, you know, basically another painting, then it's a totally different creature to see the drawing and try to make choices out you know, how's the drawing going, how's it developing, and you're seeing it essentially against this other creature. So they're, they kind of get started in, in two, three different ways, depending on if it's a, like a brand new, you know, white canvas, or if it's an older painting, so. Right, it gives you uh, just two very different things to respond to, I guess. Right, well, I mean, it's sort of, I, I would liken it to, uh, you know, when people try to decide... Uh, okay, I'm going to change the color of this room, or I want to repaint my house, and you know, you have a yellow house, and you put these swatches of green or blue paint on the yellow house, and then try to decide, well, which one do I like? And you're looking at it against this yellow, which is eventually going to go away. And, um, you know, if your house has been white or gray, and you put the same swatches up there, I, you know, I think you probably would have come to a different conclusion or a different preference for which, uh, color, you'd be thinking, oh, that's the one I'm going to go out and buy now and repaint my house. So um, that's sort of like the same thing that's happening when you're working on the white canvas versus working against the one that already has, you know, basically a lot of information on it and a lot of colors. Right. And the, the influence of 
of the ground, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's really what Alvis was talking about, and that Joseph Alvis was pointing out to, hey, you know, at the end of the day, everything is context, so whatever your theories are or your ideas are, you, not that you throw them out the window, but they only impact so much because when you're standing there looking at something, it all is affected, you know, by who else is in the room and where's the thing hanging on the wall and is it well lit and what's the color of the wall. And so the context is, is such a big part of it. Um, and it's, um, you know, the interesting thing is you get these really happy accidents that happen when you work on an older painting and then you decide which ones to hold on to and how to work or kind of riff off of them, you know. Yeah. Maybe the lack of uh, other information when you start with the, the right canvas. Right, and then there's even... Uh uh, it seems that you know color is the subject, but then there's the texture, which which definitely affects things. I imagine too, with with painting over an older painting. Yeah, the color is definitely the subject, but but without question, the texture um, it impacts the way you see the color. You know, whether the color is thick or thin or very textural, and and I, I explore some of that in my paintings. I mean, my paintings they change a lot and and terms of size, some paintings are as small as like 12 by 16 inches, and, and others are huge, like 78 by 120, and so there's something really different that happens between those two scales, but then there's also something that really happens, uh, really different that happens when uh, paint is kind of thin or flat versus when it's uh, very thick and right. goofy, and you, you, you can't help but get more physically involved with it, so. Um, what, uh, as far as... Um my next question, uh, I was wondering, uh, what, what feeds your work more? I know you had mentioned a little bit about um, one work leading to the next or, or something similar, and I was just wondering if um, you draw inspiration from other art forms, or is it more from your own work, or uh, something just is every day is life, and, or something other than those things? Well, I mean, it really is all just kind of, it's all color-driven, and... Um, you know, I've been painting for more than 25 years now, and, and it's true that in the beginning when I would travel a lot, it was very much about trying to see something new or stumble on something new, a pattern or a color, and and try to use that excitement of seeing something really new. And I think the paintings had a lot of, uh, um, they had a quality maybe of discovering things, and now I discover things in a different way because... Uh, I still travel and I still look for different things, but you know, you after a certain point, you have so much experience that you're drawing on that the idea of something new doesn't mean quite the same thing. That makes sense. Yeah, and, um, uh, hmm. that's interesting. It seems like uh, what you maybe thought was new ten years ago is is something completely different. I guess now. Right. It doesn't. It's not that it's maybe. It's not. It's like when I go back to these same places that I love and in Italy or in Scandinavia, and it's not that they become rogue, but, um, I don't know, you, you maybe take, you will, you, you definitely take them in in a different way. You take them in with these eyes that have uh, been through seeing something new so many times already. Yeah. And, uh, and, well, and, and you find other things in them that you, you couldn't find before. I think you, you, you peel back these layers and you find a different kind of thing in them that, uh, that maybe you would have been happy just with some sort of initial excitement that now you want something 
um, I guess, uh, denser or more complex. Maybe, maybe something that isn't quite as immediate that takes a little bit more time. Um, but they, but in terms of what drives my work, it's really just, um, like one of your questions was, you know, and could you use three or five words to describe your work? And if you said three words, then I would say color, color, color. And if you said five words, then I would just say color, 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 color. Right. Because um, it, it really does come down to that. And sometimes I'm making a painting of some cottages in Cape Cod, and uh, it might have some feeling that reminds people of... Uh, a great experience they had, you know, on the Cape in the summer or something like that. But really, for me, I couldn't make the painting unless there was something that intrigued me about how the colors are going to fit next to each other and what they're going to do and and how they're going to work and operate to make certain things happen and and make us feel a certain way about them. So uh, it's you know, it's not scientific. It's not really that heady as it might sound the way that I'm saying that, that they're kind of staged, but. Um, I'm very concerned about how they get assembled and what happens, like the journey for me as I'm assembling them and, and even as they're going along, how the painting kind of fools me. Like I would put a color down that I think is going to work and then it doesn't. Yeah. And then I have a color which I'm sure isn't going to work and then I put it down and in fact it does. And and that just happens over and over again and that's probably why, or that is why I keep doing it because it just, uh, color just continually deceives us. Right, yeah, it's... um. Well, I mean, you seem to paint a lot from life and, and your experiences, whether, you know, I think you had mentioned something about a photograph or, or various other things, and um, it seems like, you know, the painting in and of itself is, is its own thing, so it may have to be adjusted in some way um, based on what's happening on the canvas itself. Well, sure, but, yeah, there's, there's kind of a, like when you're painting outside, which... I, I actually don't do as much as I used to. I don't. I don't do it nearly as often uh, as I used to. But, so if you're painting outside, there's really kind of a triangle, right? Because there's you, and then there's the painting, and then there's, there's the thing you're looking at, and so there's this conversation between all three things. And I would argue that when you're in the studio, there's kind of a similar thing happening because maybe there's in a triangle, maybe it's just you know back and forth between you and the canvas, but maybe it is a triangle because after some point you have so much experience that it's almost like you're out there anyway looking at the landscape or, you know, looking at still life or, or looking at something else. And so the triangle is really, uh, the, the third point of the triangle is sustained by, by all your experience, that, that sort of collective stuff that's happened to you. Um, there was one of my teachers at Parsons who at some point just started painting out of his head all these complex things of people sitting at tables and with still lifes on the table, and, you know, if he wanted another shape, uh, he would put in a plate or he'd put in a knife, and yeah. or if it, then it didn't work, he would just take it out. At some point, you didn't have to be in front of things anymore because you're still really just editing and compiling. And, um, and, and in the end, it doesn't matter if it was there or not because if it works in the painting and you want to keep it, then it works. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter if it's sitting on the table in front of you. You need to... You need to take it out if it's not working. It's not doing what you think it should. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering. So they're all they're all perceptual. All, all perceptual. All the the pains are perceptual. Whether I'm I'm standing in front of a still life 
and then and then making a painting from the still life I'm looking at. Or if I'm standing here in my studio looking at the wall at this massive abstract painting, because it's still a bunch of things on the wall, a bunch of shapes drawn on the painting on the wall that I'm looking at, it's not a fantasy or a thing coming out of my head. It's, it's the experience of navigating the painting and making choices about what what needs to go and what needs to stay. And, and uh, you know, is the painting really saying or feeling the way that you think it should? Right. It's a, ultimately, it's a, you know, part of it is that it's an orchestration and it it seems like you have to, uh, if I'm not wrong, um, you know, definitely adhere to what the painting is doing as, as much as you wish to incorporate your own ideas into the painting. Yeah, yeah, it's a give and take, right, that's right. Yeah, um, now I was wondering too, um, if you ever deal with any kind of a creative block, and if so, how do you deal with getting out of it? Oh, that, yeah, that, that's a really good question, because uh, I'm basically in the studio Monday through Friday, like 10 to 5, and so um, you really, you, you better know how to to deal with that one. Um, and, and sometimes it just means you have a bad day and you don't get through it. It's not like I have all these uh, great solutions and without question I come to the studio and I get something done and I don't waste time. And uh, I think it's really important that you that you can see the difference between a bad day, that you kind of, you know, you burn a day in order to have a great two or three days after that. Right. Sometimes block, sometimes block means, okay, I'm not going to get anything done today. It's not going to go well. I'm not going to feel good about it when I when I get home at night and see my son. And, you know, I'm going to look at him and, and he's, he's going to say, did you have a good day? And I'm going to say, no, I didn't have a good day. Yeah. And you have good days and you have bad days. But it's true that there are a lot of things you can think about when when you're getting a block. And uh, I either look at other people's work. I take out a book and I look at it. Um, I look a lot at Joseph Albers and at Giorgio Morandi. And they often will uh, help me get started when I come to the studio if I'm not having, uh, having much luck getting started. Um, sometimes I go for a run, you know, or go for a swim. Like the way Matisse said he used to... I think Matisse uh, often said that he would go and, and go on a horse ride or something like that. Oh, wow, uh, yeah. If he was having a block. So, I, and if I had a horse, I'd probably go for a horse ride too. But uh, I don't know. Sometimes I try to put on a different CD, you know, or, or read yeah. something. I'm sorry, did uh, you say read I, something? or? Yeah, or, or read a book. Right. Or, you know, or just read a poem or, or, or an article or something. Uh, and, and a lot of the time that will help you get started. I usually... As I drive to my studio, I usually try to anticipate just the first 10 minutes or half hour how I'm going to get started. Um, and if I can just get moving and get a few colors out and, and get a few colors down on a painting, I usually find my way. But a lot of the time, it's hard to put that first color on as the day starts. And uh, it's not so simple just to come in and some days and, and mix up a color on the palette and put it down and feel like, wow, I know what I'm doing. You know? So it's, it's good to have other things that you can uh, find a way to kind of break in the day. So Yeah, that, that seems um, like a nice practice, uh, you know, and I like the way you put it, to break in the day, to kind of um, transition well into, uh, a, you know, possibly a different thinking than what happened, you know, minutes before. 
Um, now, let me ask you, uh, when do you feel that you became an artist or, or really started to fall in love with art? Well, the interesting color goes all the way back as far as I can remember. You know, I, I definitely have memories when I was a kid of seeing different uh, packaging on things or just stumbling on, on different combinations of color and thinking that they were, were so much more complex than, I don't know, all the other colors I wasn't noticing. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I painted a lot at, at the school where I went um I went to a junior high school at Staten Island Academy, and, and my art classes there were really important. My teacher would let me come in and paint as much as I, I could, so if I had a study hall or something, I would, I would usually elect to go into the art building and try to paint or something like that. And, and then it got really serious when I was around 20, 21. I, I really felt like this would probably end up being you know, my work or occupation or something like that. And yeah. That's, um, yeah, you seem to have, um, I guess it was at Parsons, uh, there's a, a long list of uh, a great lineage of instructors that you were um, studying with and, and under, I noticed on, on your website in the interview that you had sent me. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I, I was spending some time looking at their work as well, and just reminded because some of the work I haven't seen in a while, and granted it's only on the internet, but I have seen some of them um, in person. But uh, that's that's just great. Um, and that is is that another thing you still pull from? Are there still artists that inspire you today? Well, all those people at Parsons, uh, Leland Bell, Paul Resica, Larry Rivers. Um, I I don't I look at their work, but I also look at all the people that they talked about. Yeah. That was the main thing, I think, is that the way that they would introduce you to the people that they thought, you know, like if you could only own two or three books, uh, you know, I don't think they would say, like, be sure there's a Gerhard Richter book in that, in that you know, stack of three books. And uh, they would say, you know, make sure you have a Chardin book or make sure you have a Corot book. Okay. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it's the same way, like, I think... Uh, when you read about people like everyone from Cezanne to Matisse, they all seem to have a lot of common ground on who they thought were really important as you look back through art history. And it doesn't mean that they were, I don't think at all that it means, I don't think it means at all that they were being traditional. I think they were, like when Matisse was looking back at, at uh, Chardin or Giotto, I think he was just saying, look, this guy really really was very exciting in how he made his choices in his painting and the editing he did and, and his ideas about composition separated him from his contemporaries and, and, and every period you can see people who separate out from their contemporaries and, and, and so Matisse was saying you know I'm looking at him with the eyes of somebody living you know in 1910 or in 1940 and finding all this relevant stuff and so it wasn't about mimicking the past but it was about seeing the people who stood out. And I think all of my teachers would, would agree that there's a thread that runs through, and it isn't like a freight train. Art history isn't this freight train, you know, barreling through to always something newer and more, and more contemporary. Um, it, that it's just a way of saying, oh, look, look back in time and look at who separated themselves or who was uh, separate from their contemporaries. And there's always clues in there about 
the kind of uh, complexity and density that you need in your work in order to, I don't know, to say something not loftier, but something more, or, um, and not even trying to say something more sophisticated, but maybe just trying to say something more relevant or more human. That makes sense. Yeah. Kind of a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, well, a lot of this boils down to experiences that seems that came with the art training that you received. Um, do you do you feel that, how important do you think art training is for an artist um, uh, developing for the future? Well, I think it's kind of like you sending me the answer, the, not the answers, the questions that right. you were going to ask me today and, and sending everybody else the questions because we're so much more likely to have a rich conversation if you provide a little bit of structure and, and some context that we work within. Right. And I think that when you take when you go to art school and when you study art history and when you look at other people's work from you know ten years ago and people's work from a thousand years ago, then you have a different context for what you're doing and what you're trying to say and how you're trying to say it. And it's kind of like it seems to me that it would be a little bit like saying, Oh, I don't need to have any lessons or practice, I can just play the violin. I mean painting is and working with colors is just as complex as an instrument like the violin. And just because you can go out and buy all these great colors already mixed and just squirt them out and put them together, doesn't mean you're going to put together think, anything that has any resonance or meaning or, or quality to it. Um, and, and I think that when you really consider that there's other people that did amazing things, it can be kind of humbling. And hopefully, you know, being a little more humble and yet being and knowing about all these other amazing things that have happened, I think it's more likely to inform a side of you that you can't get to without having those kind of experiences. So I'm all for, like, you know, these sort of naive painters or these outsiders. And God knows there's always some of them who do unbelievable things. But that's sort of like that one in one million person that can pick up the violin and, and, and blow us away, right? Yeah. And yeah. then everybody else really has to, every, everybody else has to go to those lessons. Now, is there um, any uh, form of technology that you use in your work um, in some way? Uh, I guess it, it definitely doesn't seem that way in the finished uh, paintings, but um, is there any in the process along the way? I, I definitely, I use photographs. I mean, like, you know, paper photographs. I don't look at the screen, really. Yeah. Um, I started taking... Let's say I've been going to Europe for about 20, 22 years. Okay. And um, maybe around 10 years ago, I started to really seriously take photographs. And using the camera as a way of drawing um, with, with print film and then eventually with digital cameras. And I got better and better at capturing things, not that said exactly what I wanted, but that were really good jumping off points for saying what I want or were good jumping off points for paintings. And so I do use a lot of photography. And um, if it doesn't show up, then that's probably good because the paintings aren't supposed to be really about a dialogue with the photography that I use, but the photography is a way of, of getting started and kind of assembling some things that I want to put together. And, um, you know, there are plenty of things in my paintings that might get collaged from a handful of photographs, but I won't go and stitch those things together in Photoshop, I'll stitch them together in the painting itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and occasionally I've projected things using slides or old 
old kind of projection systems, but that's mostly you know to look at them, not so much to project it on the wall and then trace it out or anything like that. Right. Um, now, I, I guess um, some more on a little bit of the technology side of things. Do you, what do you, what do you think the internet has done uh, for or against art in some way for um, I guess for better or for worse? Uh, that, that's an, I think that's another great question because uh, Facebook, the internet, is a great way to see what people are doing. You know, whether it's ten miles away from you or on the other side of the world, and I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with knowing more about what other artists are thinking or what they're doing or what their work looks like. So, on the one hand, I think the internet really makes that much more easy to do that. Um, on the downside, the way the monitor makes all paintings sort of a, makes them all somewhat alike within a certain range, they all become equivalent. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a, I mean, the technology is always getting better, so the um, the gamut of the color is always improving, and the and the fidelity is always improving, so that you know more and more I can show somebody a painting and they can get a, a much closer idea to what it might look like in person than before. But I think the downside is. Um, you know, there's, you can't say I saw the Mona Lisa unless you went and stood in front of it, right? right? And, <laughs> and and those, and, you know, and, and like, so you go on Facebook and you share all these great ideas. I mean, there's a, I know hundreds of really serious painters, actually mostly on the East Coast that I'm connected to, and we all show each other these, these really important paintings that, that we're not all thinking about day to day, but somebody's like, hey, did you, have you seen these 10 rock paintings or these 10, uh, Giorgione paintings that maybe you don't remember that you saw them in Italy 10 years ago and you're not thinking about them and they say, oh, what about those? And it's this very helpful and, and really sophisticated conversation that's happening amongst amongst all these painters. That it's not just a bunch of people patting each other on the back saying, oh, good one, good one, go back to the studio and make another one. It's really about reminding each other that there's this very worthwhile, intense conversation that's going on with our history and, and it's a way of sustaining it, especially since we all have these kind of solitary uh, days, you know, in our right, studio. Yeah. So it's a great it's a great complement to the, to the solitary pursuit of being, uh, of, of working in a studio. But the other side is, not only is it so addictive and everything, but, you know, we're not all breathing the same air at the end of the day. We're all swapping things, but we're not in the same room, you know, looking at slides or looking at a book together and um, I don't think any, I don't want anybody to get confused that it's close enough to that that it's just as good, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's um, um, there's definitely no substitute for that. Um, there's um, one of the one of the great things that I'm, um, I really feel like I've been um, fortunate enough to to start this project and to be able to talk with so many artists already. And uh, it, I think dialogue is important. That's one of the main goals of this. And um, uh-huh. so, yeah, that um, it's been great. I, you know, I, I mean, and I have to, I guess, thank technology for that. So, uh, right. No. I, well, there, there you go. I mean, your project is enabled by the technology, and I think your project is very worthwhile. And and I think a lot of people will get something out of it, and hopefully, get something really important out of it. And it'll, you know, spread the word about things that are worth reminding everyone about. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it's tricky. It's tricky to strike. It's tricky, you know, to strike the balance. Like you were saying, well, what do you do when you have block or you're having a bad day? And you know, hopefully, it it doesn't mean that you go and you open Facebook and your studio because um, 
I, I have an iPhone in my studio, but I don't have a computer, and I try to keep the iPhone out in the car sometime, you know, and uh, it's very tempting to try to look at the iPhone or the Facebook or something when when your painting isn't moving along and distract yeah. yourself. Um, it's like these shows, that, like they're doing all this research at Stanford about all these kids in college that are multitasking at every moment of their day, and they're really good at, re at writing paragraphs, but they can't write really convincing papers that are 10 pages long because they can't sustain that train of thought. Right, yeah. Um, and, and, that, and you've got to really sustain a very intense, long train of thought to make a great painting. And so the technology is very counter to the sort of thinking it takes to go in the studio and, and, and negotiate a big painting. Yeah. There's um, one thing, too, that I found... Um, uh, just for myself with, with uh, spending a lot of time on the internet and looking at art that way that uh -huh. the, the scale of a painting or, or, or anything for that matter that's visual um, is really deceiving I mean I can, I can look at a, a, a painting online and think you know envision it as being 30 by 30 inches and, and in reality it's you know twice that size or, or, or half that size um, right right um, but, I mean, that, it's, that's it. That's it right there. I, I mean, uh, you probably are you familiar with that guy, Dwayne Kaiser, who does that Painting a Day blog? Um, where is he located? He's in Virginia. Oh, I, I don't believe so, no. He started, well, he started that whole thing, the Painting a Day, where all these people had blogs and they would do one painting every day and post it. Um, and he's the one who was in USA Today and, went and is sort of credited with founding this whole movement. Oh, okay. You should look him up. Yeah, but thank you. He makes he makes these very little paintings, and I, I think what he's doing actually really shows well on the internet, and it and it uh, it kind of it kind of marries really well with the technology. Oh wow! Yeah, that's great. Um, then, I think if it can be done, then that's that's great uh, to be able to use it that way as a as a modern tool to to create art. Right, and well, and he can show somebody a little six by six painting on a oil on a on a wooden panel. He could show them a, 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 an image on the screen, and it and it really will speak quite closely to what it's going to be like when they get it. You know. Yeah, um, yeah. But if you're painting, you know, like some of my paintings are seventy eight by one twenty, yeah. and they're in this show in San Francisco, and I send these JPEGs out to people so they can see the show and. And it's it's true, you know. They'll see something of it because they're not going to make it, make it there to see it physically. But these are huge paintings that it's like confronting, or, or like it's like coming up and and being next to three or four people versus being next to the computer screen. So it's a totally different thing, and 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 that's what the paintings are for: is for people to come and be next to them and, and be sort of swallowed up by their scale. Right, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's never going to come across in a catalog or on the Internet. So. You know, I definitely enjoy um, looking at your work, and unfortunately it's only online, like, you know, like we've uh, been talking about. But, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll, see, you'll see it around at some point. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Um, I, I, um, whether it's me uh, hopefully traveling or, or the paintings coming over here to this coast, um, well, there's painting. I have paintings in Cape Cod, so if you go to the Cape over the summer, uh, you, you can see some paintings. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, 
What was I going to say? Uh, yeah, uh, just just it, it was a bit of a, a trip down memory lane in some way. Uh, I went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in, uh-huh, in, Phil- right. yeah, in, in Philadelphia. And, um, um, you know, I guess, uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Scott Noel's work. He's a, What's the name again? Scott Noel. I don't know his name, but you that's not where... Um, Pennsylvania Academy isn't where... Uh, oh, what's his name? That's not where Neil Welliver taught for a long time, is it? Ooh, um... That I'm not sure of. Uh, I, I... That... I, Neil Welliver. I, I know the name, but I don't think that it ever came up much, and I'm sure it would have if it if he did teach there. Um, but um, uh, you know, just as far as being exposed to, it, it's interesting because you know, is, is being on the East Coast and just for some reason, there like Scott Noel just would would bring up people like Richard Diebenkorn and um, uh, Leonard Anderson. Um, you know, not necessarily connected to each other, but just just th- that type of painting. And, and during that time when I was studying with Scott Noel, it it um, those ideas like made sense to me. You know, and and just wonderful with um, kind of taking a trip and looking up some of these artists that you had uh, studied with uh, at Parsons. Um, like, right, right. Yeah, Paul Resica and Leonard Anderson were good friends. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's um, now that I'm hearing you pronounce his name. I know it's it, you know they're almost when you hear one name you hear the other kind of thing yeah um, right all those guys are sort of like the same age and actually almost everybody's dead except for Resica and I think Leonard Anderson is alive unless maybe he died in the last year I think he's still alive there was one other guy Gabriel Ladderman who just died a month ago oh okay um, but so many of those people who uh, actually went to the Hans Hoffman School right. in the 50s or, or knew everybody who went. Almost all of those people have passed away now. So. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, hopefully they're, they're I, I'm sh- I shouldn't even say this, but, uh, you know, just, I'm sure it will, but their their legacy lives on and, and you know, young artists, it's, uh, it's, what a great tradition it seems, you know, and, and it just, I, I find myself making more assemblages and things like that, but like with with painting, I mean, you know, Hans Hoffman is is just always somebody I'll enjoy looking at. Um, well, I think you should look at uh, both. Um, there's a guy named Ken Cooley. You ever heard of him? No, no. How, how do you spell that? Is it so? It's K K E N. Yeah. And then K E W L E Y. Oh, okay. Huh. So Ken Cooley is really keeping the tor- the torch burning oh, for all those guys who taught in New York in the 80s and 90s. And um, if you look him up, you'll see him on Facebook. But he's connected to all these painters around the East Coast. And I mean, he's like one of the most respected painters in, in the community of people who still kind of come out of uh, painting, you know, as opposed to... Uh, like the art world kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, I, I look, I, I'm interested to see what Peter Doig is doing and what he's about and what he's thinking, and and I and I like like Bazalitz and Gerhard Richter and all these other things that are very much a part of the art world. But there's this whole other community of really serious painters, some of whom you know show in New York and are well known, and 
and some who aren't that that kind of are attached to something else that will be around, you know, whether the R world is around or not. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's um, it's rich, and you know. Um, I feel, I, you know, when I look at those paintings, you know, from some of these painters who I know, and, and then, you know, going to definitely look up some of these artists that you're bringing up that I don't know, I just get, you know, it, it feels kind of boyish, but I feel like this, this feeling in my chest, you know, this just like, I don't whether it's inspiration or just something un, un, um, something that can't be put into words, but there's definitely um, um, a, a rich tradition there, and and yeah, I'm excited to look up Ken Cooley's work. Yeah, basically there's three galleries in New York. There's, there's Lori Bookstein Gallery and another gallery where the name is hard to pronounce. It's, it's called Lowen Gadold. And then the Stephen Harvey Gallery. This came out of uh, when Salander O'Reilly, that really famous gallery, closed. Stephen Harvey worked for them and then he started his own gallery. But those three galleries all show, like if you're a 40 or 50 year old painter, or, or even a 30 year old painter who's really serious and kind of comes out of this thing I'm talking about. Yeah. A lot of the painters show in those three galleries, or they know all the painters who show in those three galleries. That's great. So um, it's, uh, yeah. It's, anyway, you should check it out. Yeah. Uh, um, I just, uh, this has been a, a great. Uh, interview, I think, and I thank you for all the information as well. Um, oh, you're, yeah, you're welcome. No, yeah. I, I, it was interesting that you asked me to do it, and uh, I, I think it's great what you're doing. So hopefully it spreads the word about all these uh, serious painters that are out there. Oh, yeah, and and um, it's just, it, it, it's great, and, you know, just in general um, to to get, uh, I, I've had a wide range of artists already on, on the podcast, and it's it's been great, and um, to uh, stretch out to the West Coast, uh, finally. Um, so I'm happy to do it. I'm sort of a New York transplant on the West Coast, but I'm happy to do it. I've oh, okay. For, <laughs> I've been here for 20 years now, but yeah, some kind of uh, half and half. So right, yeah, that's great. Um, let me uh, just thank you for talking with me on Oddcast. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do it, and and uh, let me know how it turns out. Okay. All right, great. I will. Yeah, I'll send you an email. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more on Mitchell Johnson's work, please visit MitchellJohnson.com. This has been Oddcast. Thank you from me, your host, Philip J. Mellon. Keep the dialogue going.